It was almost 25 years ago that my parents left this life to go on to eternal life. And even though it's been several years ago, I still think about them often and I remember them. When I was thinking about them recently, I realized that in just a few days, 10 days to be exact, my father, if he were still alive, would be 100 years old. And come this November, my mother would also have been 100 years old. 100 years. When I think about that, it makes me really feel old. It makes me think about my mortality. My parents married when they were very young. They were barely 18 years old in 1939 when they got married. They were very different. They came from very different backgrounds. My father came from a very poor family. He was an only child. My grandpa Poteet was a butcher for a while. Later, he was a farmer. I can remember going to visit their farm. It was near Marshfield, Missouri, which was near Springfield, Missouri. And this little farm, they had just a little three-room farmhouse. Out back, they had some cows, they had a chicken coop, and an outhouse, which I tried to avoid all the time. My mother came from a well-to-do family, a large family. She was one of six children, four sisters and one brother. My grandfather Potts was an employee of the Frisco Railroad. He was the chief engineer of the Frisco Railroad. And because of that position, during the Depression, when jobs were hard to come by, he was able to get a job for my father and two of my uncles. My father was forever grateful. As I said, my parents married at 18. By the time they were 19, my older brother was born. And then before long, my father joined the Marines and shipped off to the Pacific for World War II. Two people coming from very different backgrounds. You know, marriage wasn't always easy. There were struggles along the way, just like there are with all marriages. And there were times when I have to admit, I wondered, how did they stay together? other than the fact that perhaps they had made a promise. They'd made a covenant with God and their family and their friends to stay together. When I talk to couples today who are getting married, I tell them the same thing. There are reasons now that couples should sometimes part, but I say, don't cut and run at the first sign of trouble. Remember this promise that you made to stay together. So there will be days, I tell them, I say, when you're going to wake up and you're going to look at that person next to you in bed and you're going to wonder, who is that? Are we still in love? And then I tell these young couples, I say, remember the things you did when you first got together, the things that made you fall in love with each other, and then try to do those things again because you've made a promise before God and before others to stay together. My parents were together for 57 years. And during that time, they created a life together, a family. They did something very important, at least certainly in my eyes, as I was the third child that was born in that family. You know, sometimes it's interesting to see how people get together, people who are so different from each other, people who come from very different backgrounds, and yet it is possible for people to come together. Today we are starting a new sermon series called The Odd Couple. The idea being that there are these people who are so different 
and yet they find ways to come together. You know, we live in a world that is so divided at times. And people sometimes tend to be on the extremes of politics, religion, whatever, and there's such a gap in the middle. And yet, how do we find a way to bridge that gap and to come together? The Odd Couple, of course, comes from an idea about a Broadway play that premiered in 1965. It later became a movie and then a TV show. I grew up knowing about The Odd Couple. I'd seen the movie. I'd seen the TV show. I just kind of assumed everybody knew about The Odd Couple until I mentioned it to my kids one day, and they had no idea what it was. And I said, The Odd Couple, you know, the movie, Felix and Oscar. And I thought, it was just 50-something years ago. Seems like just the other day. They didn't know about The Odd Couple. As I said, it premiered in 65 on Broadway. Neil Simon, a great playwright, wrote the show. Three years later in 68, the movie came out. The Broadway show starred Walter Matthau and Art Carney as Felix. Some of you might know Art Carney when he was with the Honeymooners and Jackie Gleason years before that. Walter Matthau would later go on to be in a movie called The Bad News Bears, which you also might remember. When the movie came out, Walter Matthau played Oscar again. This time, Jack Lemmon played the role of Felix. Felix and Oscar, two very different people, definitely an odd couple, who come together. They're friends. Felix is a neat freak, you might say, and that still would be an understatement. He's a bit neurotic also. And then you have his friend Oscar, a sports writer in New York City, Oscar's happy-go-lucky, he probably gambles too much, he may drink too much, and he's a slob. He's a slob. His apartment is a mess, and yet he invites his friends, including Felix, over on Friday nights. They get together, they play poker, and then Felix gets tossed out of his home by his wife. They're going through a divorce. Felix has nowhere to go, and so he goes to Oscar's apartment, and Oscar says, well, I guess you can stay here for a while. And Felix says, okay, and he moves in. But as he looks around at Oscar's apartment and the mess, he says, something has to be done about this. And so he begins to tidy up. He begins to organize things. And Oscar, of course, starts to rebel because he can't stand this, and he begins to untidy everything and unorganize the apartment again. He takes the pictures which Felix has taken and straightened them out, and he puts them crooked again. Pretty soon, Oscar can't stand it anymore, and he tells Felix, you've got to leave. I just can't do this anymore. Felix leaves, and Oscar feels so guilty. And so he calls together the poker buddies, and they go out to look for Felix. They go looking all through New York City. They finally find Felix, and when they do, Oscar and Felix both apologize to each other, and they confess. They say that in this time, they have discovered that a little bit of each of them is rubbed off on the other, and they are none the worse for it. It has a typical Hollywood happy ending. As I was writing this message, I began to think about other odd couples. Who else was an odd couple? Well, my kids gave me one idea at first. They said, here's an odd couple for you, Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart. And I thought, well, that's one I don't know. Did you know that Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart had a television show called Potluck Dinner Party? I didn't know that. Now, that is an odd couple. 
Another odd couple I read about uh, this past week was John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Of course, both would go on to become president. Jefferson was Adams' first vice president when he was president. Here were two different men, very different. Adams was this short, rotund New Englander. Jefferson was this tall Virginian with flaming red hair. John Adams liked to read the Bible. Thomas Jefferson liked to write the Bible. Or more to the point, what he did was he took the New Testament and he took a razor and he cut out all the parts that he didn't like. It's called the Jefferson Bible. I got to see it three or four years ago in the Library of Congress. These two men from such different backgrounds, and yet they both were able to come together and they had such a profound influence on writing the Declaration of Independence. Adams was the champion for independence in the Continental Congress. And Jefferson said to Adams, he said, you know, I think you ought to write the Declaration. John Adams looked at Jefferson and he says, no, 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 no. I can't do it. You know how people feel about me. They think I'm obnoxious and I'm disliked. And besides, he says, you write 10 times better than I do. And so it was Jefferson who took the quail pen and wrote the Declaration of Independence. Two very different men coming together to make a huge difference at the beginning of our country. As we think about odd couples, I believe that God delights in bringing people together. You know, we are all different in some ways, and yet we are all the same in other ways. We all have that divine spark. And I believe that God calls us to come together, to bridge the differences that we have in our lives, to be able to come together to share God's love. When you look at the Bible, there are some odd couples there. I chose to focus this week on two, Paul and Barnabas. Two people, once again, coming from very different backgrounds. Barnabas, as you may or may not know, whose name was originally Joseph, he was from Cyprus, we learn in the book of Acts. And in this new church, the way, those who were following Jesus Christ, Joseph was there at the ground floor when it began. He sold some property and he gave the money to this new church, this new movement. And I can tell you, as one who has started a new church, how grateful you are for anyone that shows up to help you start a new church. Joseph was one who was an encourager also in this movement. And people noticed and they said, you know what? From now on, your name will be Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Now, Paul, who was called Saul at the time, he was also involved with this new movement in a way, if you will, but he was on the other side. You see, it was Saul who was out trying to arrest these new Christians everywhere they went. He was an aggressive young man. He was there at the stoning of Stephen. And he even went so far as to go to the high priests. And he said, if you give me permission, then I will root out these new people, these Christians, and I will arrest them and throw them in prison wherever I find them. And so they do. Well, you may know the story in Acts. Saul is on the road to Damascus when he is literally knocked down and he hears a voice from heaven. And it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's Jesus. And Saul gets up. He goes to Damascus. 
where Ananias, who's a part of this new movement, meets him and helps, to, helps him to recover his sight. They change his name to Paul. And Paul goes out and begins to preach the gospel. Now, can you imagine the people in this new movement, this new church, they look at Paul, who's now out preaching the gospel, and they say, wait a minute, wasn't that the same guy last week that was trying to throw us in jail? And they don't trust him. Barnabas comes to know Paul, and he goes to the leadership in Jerusalem, and he says, I have met this young man. I can vouch for him. His conversion was real. I think you ought to meet him. And so they do. But there's still so many who, who don't trust Paul. And eventually he has to flee Jerusalem. He goes back home to Tarsus where he grew up. He's there for many years. And during this time, the church continues to grow by leaps and bounds. Barnabas is asked to go to help with the new church in Antioch. It's also a growing church. And the leaders say, you need to go to Antioch. You need to help to guide these people in this new church. And so he says, okay. He takes off for Antioch. And he remembers his old friend Paul. And he says to himself, I'm going to need some help at this church. And so he goes to Tarsus. He finds Paul. He convinces him to go with him to Antioch. And they go to Antioch and they're there for a whole year giving leadership to this young church. It's during that time that the Holy Spirit reveals to them that Barnabas and Paul are to be missionaries, to go out and to start new churches everywhere. And so that's what they do. And it's no more Barnabas and Paul. Now it's Paul and Barnabas as Paul begins to take the lead. They go around starting new churches everywhere in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. They cross over into Europe to Greece. They start new churches in Corinth and Thessalonica and Philippi. They spread the gospel to all the known corners of the world. It's an amazing partnership between two people who came from very different backgrounds. It's hard, though, to come together to cross that bridge, to bridge that gap. Of course, in the Odd Couple movie, Felix and Oscar, they come together at the end. It's Hollywood, right? But you know, in reality, Paul and Barnabas would eventually split up. When they were going on the second missionary journey, they had disagreements, and so Paul went his way, and Barnabas went his. John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, after writing the Declaration of Independence, they later would become political enemies and were that way until the time of death when they were finally reconciled. I can't tell you about Snoop Dogg and Martha. I think they're still friends. They may still be together. But it's not easy. It's not easy to be an odd couple, to be able to come together to do great things. And yet I believe that is still what God calls us to do. So how do we do that? How do we bring people together? Just a couple of thoughts. I think people come together when they are able to swallow their pride. You know, pride is one of those things that just gets in our way so often. You remember pride was one of the seven deadly sins, perhaps the, the deadliest of all the deadly sins. Pride is that sort of thing that says, I'm not going to overcome the things that happened between us before. I won't forget them, and you can just go your way and I'll go mine. But if we're going to come together, 
we have to overcome our pride. When I think about two people that did that, I think about two politicians, two former presidents actually, George Herbert Walker Bush and Bill Clinton, two very unlikely partners, two very different people. You know, Bill Clinton was born in a little town in Hope, Arkansas. His family was very poor. He didn't even know his father. His father died three months before he was born. But George Bush, he came from a very wealthy patrician family born in Massachusetts. His father was a Wall Street banker and later a senator from Connecticut. When they both ran against each other in 1992 for president, George Bush would say, I thought until the very end, I thought I was going to win that race. He said, I'm going to stay the course and I'm going to win. But it was Bill Clinton who was this young upstart who went around on the campaign trail talking about George Bush and calling him old. George Bush was 22 years older than Bill Clinton. And so when the election was over and Bill Clinton had won, it left a, a bitter taste in the mouth of George Bush. And yet, George Bush found himself in the tradition of other presidents now who have left a letter of encouragement for their successors. On Bill Clinton's inauguration day, George Bush wrote a note. He put it in the desk there in the Oval Office, and he wrote to Bill Clinton, and he said, from now on, your success is the country's success. I will be rooting hard for you. Fast forward about 12 years. The president now is George Bush, George W. Bush, Bush 43, the son of George Herbert Walker Bush. It's 2004, the day after Christmas, an earthquake happens in the Indian Ocean, a huge earthquake which causes this amazing tsunami to wash across the shores in so many of these countries in Southeast Asia. Over 200,000 people are killed and hundreds of thousands are left homeless. Aid begins to pour in from all around the world and in the United States, President Bush thinks to himself, how can I best help to organize the relief efforts that we can do to help these countries? And he has an idea. He picks up the phone. He calls his father first. And then he picks up the phone and he calls Bill Clinton. And he thinks to himself, it's been 12 years. Surely they've been able to put aside their differences now and they'll come and help me. I need someone who can go over to Asia to, to check out the situation and find out where the need is greatest. And then I need two people who are proven fundraisers, who can raise money from all sorts of places to help in the relief effort. Well, both of these former presidents agree to help. I'm not sure they were completely on board with this, but they agree. It was their duty. George W. Bush says, I'm going to give you a government plane. You can fly over to Asia, check out the situation. They take off on the plane. On this plane, there is just one bedroom, one bed. And George Bush says to Bill Clinton, he says, you take the bedroom, you take the bed. But Clinton says, no, 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 I insist. You need the bed. I know you have a bad back. You take the bed. And so Bush says, okay. He retires to bed. Bill Clinton stays up into the night playing cards. Morning comes, and George Bush peeks out his door 
And what does he see? There's Bill Clinton asleep on the floor of this airplane. He said that small gesture really touched me and our friendship began to blossom. Well, we went to Asia and then we came back and and they raised millions of dollars. And by this time, the friendship was really beginning to grow. They would get together after that. They would come together to play golf. They would get together for other charity events. They once again raised millions of dollars after Hurricane Katrina. Barbara Bush took to calling the two of them the odd couple. Imagine that. It is said that uh, after Bill Clinton had surgery a few years later, that Bush 43 was addressing a large crowd and he wanted to give them an update on how Bill Clinton was doing. And he told them, he said, President Clinton came through the surgery just fine. Um, He woke up and he was surrounded by those he loved, Hillary, Chelsea, and my dad. George Bush would say later, he would say, I may have been the father that Bill Clinton never had. And Bill Clinton would tell the authors of a book called The President's Club, he would say, you know what made this work? What made this work was George Bush being able to swallow his pride and forget about past grievances. Clinton said, it was all Bush's doing. I give him all the credit for forming this relationship. You know, George Bush could have continued to be upset about what had happened in 1992, but he was able to to put it aside. And they came back together, and they became these great friends. It is pride that often keeps us from taking that step and pairing with someone else to do something great. Secondly, I believe that we are able to come together when we are willing to talk to one another, and in doing so, we come together to learn to trust one another. One of my favorite movies is a movie called Remember the Titans. It came out in the year 2000. It's a true story uh, about a high school in Alexandria, Virginia, T.C. Williams High School. It was in 1971, they were integrating the school, and they take two groups of football players, one who is black, another group that is all white, and they put them together at this high school to form a new team. There are two coaches that also come together, one who is black, Herman Boone, another who was white, Bill Yost. Yost was the favorite to get the head job at this school, but yet the school board instead chose Herman Boone, the African-American coach. At first, Yost was a little upset. He thought, it should have been me. But when his white players say, we won't go play unless you come with us, then Yost says, okay. And so he becomes the defensive coordinator. It's difficult. It's a hard thing at first. These players, they don't like each other. The whites don't like the blacks. The blacks don't like the whites. And these two coaches who are so different. Coach Boone was one of these people who was an abrasive kind of coach. You know, one of those who gets right in your face and grabs your helmet and tells you what you're doing wrong. Coach Yost was more laid back, almost stoic. Boone would be the one who would yell at the players, and then Yost would come along and pick him up 
and say, it's okay, you'll get it next time, you'll be fine. These two coaches who were so different. Coach Boone decides to take the team before the season begins for summer training camp. They go to Gettysburg College and they practice. They practice hard. They practice two times a day. They practice three times a day. He gets them up at three o'clock in the morning and he takes them for a morning run. And it's cold and it's wet and it's dark and they run and they run until they can run no further. And in the movie, Coach Boone, who's played by Denzel Washington, says to these kids, who now discover where they are when they can run no more, they're in a cemetery. And Coach Boone says this to them. Anybody know what place this is? This is Gettysburg. This is where they fought the Battle of Gettysburg. 50,000 men died right here on this field, fighting the same fight that we're still fighting amongst ourselves today. This green field right here was painted red, bubbling with the blood of young boys, smoke and hot lead pouring right through their bodies. Listen to their souls, man. I killed my brother with malice in my heart. Hatred destroyed my family. And Boone says, you listen. And take a lesson from the dead. If we don't come together right now on this hallowed ground, we too will be destroyed just like they were. I don't care if you don't like each other, but you will respect each other. And I don't know. He says, maybe we will learn to play this game like men. The team does come together. They come together and they go 13-0 in that 71 season. They win the state championship. But it wasn't easy. It really began with these two coaches, Boone and Yost, who didn't really know each other before they were hired. But when they went to this camp at Gettysburg College, they were roommates. And it is Herman Boone who said, no doubt the beginning of our relationship was rocky. We got to training camp and we became roommates and we found a way to talk to one another. I think that's the formula, he said, for race relations throughout the world. People have to learn to talk to one another. You have to learn to talk to that individual. And when you talk to that individual, you learn to trust that individual. And that's the greatest gift that God gave to man, to talk to one another. We don't talk to each other a lot these days, it seems like. Oh, we talk, but we talk at each other. And we sure don't listen a lot. Do we want to come together? Can we find a way to overcome our differences? Our differences in how we view the world? How we feel about religion? How we feel about politics? Who we support? Whether we wear masks or not? Can we come together? then we have to swallow our pride. We have to learn how to talk to each other and not at each other. We have to learn how to listen again. It's hard to believe that sometimes that people who are so different, who are like black and white, can come together. But I believe God calls us to do that to find a way to become the odd couple that comes together to 
do amazing things. When I was growing up, there was a, a pop group that was very popular called Three Dog Night. And they had a lot of hit songs. One of the songs they had that was a hit was a song that came out in 1972 called Black and White. Here's some of the words. The ink is black. The page is white. Together, we learn to read and write. The world is black. The world is white. It turns by day and then by night. A child is black. A child is white. Together they grow to see the light. We live in a difficult time. A time when people are angry, when they're frustrated, when they don't know which way to go, when tribalism is so important in our society today. And God steps into this situation and says, what are you going to do? How are you going to come together? How are you going to come together to share God's love, to make a difference in this world, to be a beacon of hope? How are you going to come together so that we can grow together and see the light? It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers. You listen to what God may be trying to say to you today. Let's pray. Amen.